0: Welcome to Dowla: New Histories of the Medieval Middle East, a podcast brought to you by the postdoctoral researchers at Ghent University, that's in Belgium. My name is Kenneth Gowdy, and our podcast has one simple purpose, to introduce you to the exciting and cutting-edge historical research, yes, you heard that correctly, exciting and cutting-edge historical research, which we're carrying out as part of a bigger project on history writing in 15th century Egypt and Syria. I'll come back to the project in a minute, but first a word about our name, Daoula. As you might have guessed, Daula is an Arabic word. At its simplest, it means alternation, rotation, change, turn of fortune, and so on. It's by no means a simple word to translate, but for our purposes, it came to mean, as early as the 8th century, a period of personal reign or power, as in, this is the time of so-and-so's Daula, and ultimately then, it came to mean a dynasty. In modern use, it means something close to the permanent power of government, the state. Historically, however, there was always a sense of the imminence of the divine. This wasn't just someone's turn in power, it was their God-given turn in power. And so our podcast is called Daula because we're going to be talking about power, about authority, and in particular about the narratives that put it all into perspective. But before all of that, in this, our very first episode, we want to introduce you to the project we're working on. It's called MMS2, the Mamlukization of the Mamluk Sultanate, historiography, political order, and state formation in 15th century Egypt and Syria. It's funded by the European Research Council under the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme, with the Consolidator Grant Agreement number 681510. It is radically rethinking how we understand the Mamluk Sultanate. Perhaps our most provocative rethinking is that we should stop using the term Mamluk Sultanate altogether. This is not exactly an uncontroversial statement to make, and over the course of this episode we're going to hopefully convince you that the term Mamluk Sultanate is not particularly historical, accurate or helpful, and we're going to suggest that we instead speak of the Cairo Sultanate. Before I go any further, I think it's best to warn you up front that we're not going to be providing a narrative history of the Mamluk Sultanate, or the Cairo Sultanate, or whatever you want to call it. Narratives of the history abound, and we're not interested in going over the same ground. Our thinking is that if you found your way to a podcast about new histories of the medieval Middle East, then you probably already have a passing familiarity with the history. If not, don't worry. We'll include a few links in the description for those who want a bit more background, but we're going to be focusing on the new and exciting research that we're doing. Seriously, historical research can be new and exciting. That being said, however, if I'm going to convince you that the term Mamluk Sultanate has had its time, I do need to give you some background information. The Mamluk Sultanate is a term which refers to the political formation which dominated Egypt and Syria between 1250 and 1517. According to conventional scholarship, the Mamluk Sultanate was a polity fundamentally rooted in the institution of military slavery. It developed when the slave soldiers of the Ayyubid dynasty, that is, the dynasty established by Saladin of anti frankish jihad fame, generically referred to as Mamluks, overthrew their masters and acquired elite status and political authority in Egypt and Syria in the 1250s. This newly was able to monopolise political power at the expense of all other political groups and even their own descendants until the Ottoman conquest of Egypt in 1517. It reached its apogee during the confrontations against the crusaders and the Mongol Ilkhanid towards the end of the 13th century. Thereafter, it went into steady decline due to deviations from its original Mamluk ideal, primarily through dynastic tendencies, most dramatically in the 15th century. This decline narrative is not limited to the Mamluk Sultanate, One of the more enduring readings of Middle Eastern history is that the Islamic world entered a broader period of decline after a golden age. This was represented in the political sphere by the collapse of the Abbasid Caliphate, the Mongol invasions, and of course the rise of slaves to positions of power in Egypt and Syria. There have been similar things said about the nature of Islamic scholarship, of the death of Islamic philosophy, the dehistoricization of history, even the fossilisation of literature in its entirety. In recent decades, however, this notion of decline has become increasingly challenged, particularly when it comes to history writing and literature more broadly. Scholars like Thomas Bauer and Conrad Hirsler have demonstrated how literature came to represent a crucial channel of communication and identity formation for all educated elites in the region. They have demonstrated how this went hand-in-hand with a marked expansion in the sheer number of texts that were produced and widely consumed, and how, from the 14th century onwards, increasingly more and more diverse social groups joined these educated elites in these processes by not just reading, but also producing texts. We are, right now, in a period of rapid revisionism. We are part of this revisionism, and we take some of our cues from the work of people like Bauer and Hirsler, but apply them to the narrative of the Mamluk Sultanate, There's always a bit of delay between when academic history meets popular history, usually a decade or two, and that's one of the reasons why we're making this podcast. We want to shorten that delay. We're not the first to challenge the idea of the Mamluk Sultanate, and there are a number of different points which challenge the narrative. Let's start at the beginning. Mamluk. On the face of it, this seems like a relatively benign term to use, but we have to remember that it actually refers to three different concepts. Lowercase Mamluks refers to the military slaves of the rulers and military leaders. This is from where all other usage derives. Uppercase Mamluks refers to the sultans and the emirs, and to the political elite in general. Finally, we have the Mamluk period, which refers to the period between 1250 and 1517. This was a period when different ethnic groups, Turks and Circassians especially, when different dynasties, predominantly in the 13th and 14th centuries, and different political networks of emirs and lowercase Mamluks, predominantly in the 15th century, were dominant in Egypt and Syria. The problem with forgetting that the term can mean three different things is that we end up conflating them. And this underscores the idea that it is a proper analytical category. We end up with Mamluk economics, Mamluk politics, Mamluk historiography, Mamluk women. The Mamluks are treated like any other Islamic dynasty alongside the Fatimids, Ayyubids, Timurids, Ottomans, Safavids, etc., but they were not a dynasty. Furthermore, the elision of these three concepts under a single term has tended to suggest the precedence of military slavery as a defining aspect of the political order throughout the entire period. But this isn't necessarily accurate. Let's look at the sultans themselves. Out of about 44 sultans, only 20 of them came from a Mamluk background, by which I mean that they were from Central Asia. They had slave origins they were socialised in the barracks of the Cairo citadel, and then went through similar social processes of manumission, military service, and trying to find career court. But what we have to remember is that the sultanate was never the explicit property of some continuous capital M Mamluk project that was steered only by military slavery. We have 24 sultans who had not been lowercase mamluks. Furthermore, contemporaries never called it the Mamluk Sultanate, preferring instead terms such as Daulat al al-Turk, or Daulat al when they referred to it. Okay, fine. Daulat al-Mamalik does occur in a few sources, but incredibly rarely and only later in the 15th century, and not nearly frequently enough to justify calling the whole period the Mamluk period. And when our sources talk about the Daulat al what they mean is something more like the God-given turn of the Turks, to be in power. Occasionally, our sources will recognise two periods of the Daulat al the Daula del Atrak and the Daula del Jarakasa, the Daula of the Circassians. The important point here is that they are not emphasising the slave origin or slave status of the rulers, but their ethnic and linguistic backgrounds. Perhaps the most substantive challenge to the narrative has been launched by Jovan Steinberg, the principal investigator of MMS2. He has done so in two ways, firstly through the introduction of the term Mamlukization, and by arguing for the use of the term Cairo Sultanate. Professor Van Steenbergen has kindly agreed to join me to tell us a bit more about these two terms, how they relate to each other, and where they come from. Let's start
1: with Mamlukization. Okay, so the question of Mamlukization goes back, of course, to the way political formation of Egypt and Syria between the 13th and early 16th centuries have always been defined as a Mamluk Sultanate, as a Sultanate that is imagined as a slave state, a state of military slaves uh, or Mamluks. As I'm sure you've already explained in, in some way, there are some issues with that. Now, it has to be made very clear that the Mamluk or the military slave nature of the majority of the political elites of Egypt and Syria is what might one might call a matter of prosopographical fact, that the majority of these elites between the 13th and early 16th century uh, were indeed military slaves and that this was not just a trivial thing, that this was even an important thing as may be gathered from the from the fact that we refer to it as the Mamluk Sultanate mm-hmm. and that we've been doing so for, for at least two centuries, if not even longer already. Uh, from the individual life stories of many a sultan that we also know, who the majority of whom, or many of whom at least, uh, who were military slaves, were acquired from the regions of today's Ukraine, from the Caucasus, uh, brought to Egypt and Syria over the slave trades, and then made their careers over many, many years until finally making it to the position of sultan. So they all shared in these humble origins, as it were, or many of them at least shared in these humble origins. Nevertheless, there are some problems with this. And one one of the problems you might think of very on a very abstract level is the fact that, or the question, why do we insist on referring to this sultanate and all these ma- military mm-hmm. slaves who became sultans? Why do we insist on, on identifying them first and foremost by the nature of, of their origins, by their military slaveries? Whereas we do not do that for quite a few other uh, political formations mm-hmm. uh, that also have their origins in military slavery. And the sultans who acquired the throne uh, start of their careers as military slaves. We have uh, in Egypt, even already in the 9th century, the, Toulounids, the sons uh, Toulounids, the, 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 the dynasty set up by Ahmed ibn Tulun, whose father was a military slave. We have Raznavids in um, the regions of Eastern Iran, where again, the origins of the political formation uh, go back to military slavery. We have others like the Khwaraz and Shahs in Iran in the 13th century, and we have the Zangits in the 12th century in the region of Syria, uh, or some of them. What we might be called the predecessors of the Sultanate. Mm-hmm. Again, the origins of that particular political formation go back to military slaves. We even have the Ottomans, who might say, who in the 15th, especially the 16th and 17th century at least if we look at the the military, political and administrative elites of the Ottomans, they have their origins in military slavery. We never identify them or define them first and foremost through this prism of of military slavery. Also for the Sultanate of Egypt and Syria, which we tend to call Mamluk, which we tend to identify first and foremost as a military slave state. There are a lot of questions or a lot of issues that are not uh, well represented, taken care of, identified when you look at it through the military slave state issue. One of them is the fact that we may be dealing with um, a a list of some 20 sultans that uh, reigned and ruled over Egypt and Syria between the uh, mid-13th century and the early 16th century. But we also need to acknowledge the fact that only 10 of those twenty-six sultans were really successful. They sat on the throne for more than a couple of years. They managed to stabilize um, the social and political and cultural environment and also economic environment in which they were active around their authority uh, in, in relatively successful ways. And that if we look at these most successful sultans we have to accept the fact that in the 13th century there were only three who originated in military slavery in the 14th century there's actually only one who was successful by the end of the century in the 15th century then have a range of seven of these military uh, slaves who became sultans after long careers and so if anything seems to be happening, it seems to be that at the beginning it seems to be a very haphazard process of military slaves taking power and becoming sultans, where for a long stretch of time, actually between the 1290s and 1412, there was only one successful. So it seems to be the exception rather than the rule, whereas the other, the, the, the other, it seems to be the other way around for the 15th century when there is a succession of military slaves managing to get to the, to the throne. And this means that there are also serious gaps in what we call the Mamluk Sultanate, that in which we have sultans who are not Mamluks. They may have descended from military slaves or they did descend from military slaves, but they were not Mamluks. An enormous gap that appears, especially in the 14th century, when we have a long list of um, many sultans who sat on the throne, who were descendants of one particular sultan, of one particular Mamluk sultan, And that was Kalaun who reigned between 1279 and 1290 and whose descendants continued to sit on the throne as sultans to reign and very often also to rule until the 1380s, whose descendants actually continued to be acknowledged as having some some kind of royal appearance. Uh, and deserving of privileges, living in the citadel, for instance, until the the 1430s. So there's uh, this long period in which we have, not Mamluk sultans, we have uh, a a long dynasty, the Kalaunid dynasty. Overall, in the entire space of the Sultanate, 20 Mamluk sultans, but we also have 21 non-Mamluk sultans between the 1260s and the early 15th century. And in the 15th century even it continues even though we have a a predominance of Mamluks taking the throne, every one of them tries to put his own son on the throne. And that that can be explained in many ways, but it is a fact that there are also six non-Mamluk sultans who were very unsuccessful and many of them reigned only for a few, for a very short time. Now for traditional explanations, for the Mamluk explanation, these sort of gaps of where non-man took the to throne exposed some, something of an interpretive problem, a problem that was then tended to be explained away as moments of crisis, of transition, of uh, of yeah, crisis in the slave state, as it were, that had to be solved until they put someone on the throne and then this resolved the crisis and then everything mm-hmm. went back to normal. The problem may well be not what happened, not history. The problem may well be our interpretation of history, our reduction, reductive interpretation of history is trying to look at things through a Mamluk paradigm. So the remarkable issue is perhaps not so much the repeated success of Mamluk, Mamluk the, the remarkable issue is the appearance uh, of, a, or the resilience of hereditary practices and lineage-based strategies, which resulted really in very powerful dynasties. So we need to look for another paradigm uh, another way of looking at the sultanate that does not impose one interpretation, which fits some cases but doesn't fit many others, and so then we, if we look at the material, the sources themselves, or how they identify what is happening, how they try to make sense of it, and how do they want to, they, they represent the polity itself, then we also see that the notion of a Mamluk sultanate it was not used it's something it's a neologism it's not it was not used by our sources um, and that, except perhaps one and that was as always the problem uh, the odd one out that's al who does use it in in one or two of his texts uh, and then it's Makrizi who gets uh, uh, to be used or to be most well known in scholarship uh, in, in from the 18th, 19th century onwards, and perhaps he set a, a, tone, a particular tone there. But if we look at the entire field of sources that we have, it's, it's not the Mamluk Sultanate that stands out. It's other references, like the Daula of the Turks, the, Ruh, the, the, the Reign or the, the dynasty of the Turks. And this is a very open signifier that can mean all kinds of things, but that, that stresses the Turkishness uh, of these elites. The um, kings of the, of the Circassians for the second period are definitely also stressed, stressing um, that particular Circassian identity, but qualifying it or reinterpreting it as part of a wider Turkish identity, which is quite um, interesting in many ways. What we see, I think, as the most stable factors for this sultanate that connects what happens in the 13th century to what happens in the 16th century, also from an interpretive uh, perspective, allows to connect and see these things as, as part of one political formation. Is not the Mamluk nature of the sultans, not even of the elites. It was an element, but it was not stressed by them. But it's other things like institutions, the sultanate to begin with, but also the emirate, the, the institution of military leadership with all the rights and privileges and duties that came with it. It's a constant throughout the period. It's also um, the um, centrality of the court in Cairo. Cairo as a central space of power and the court as as extremely central within that, build up around the Sultan, with its offshoots in Egypt, but also in various uh, uh, cities, urban centers, in Syria it's uh, also this um, particular system, the particular resources from agriculture but also resources in terms of manpower that continue to be brought to Cairo. military slaves continue to be brought to Cairo, and a particular value system that is upheld that is organized around Sunni Islam and uh, perhaps best represented also by the caliphate the Abbasid caliphate that is re, uh, re- restored Uh, in in mid uh, 13th century Cairo continues to exist until the early 16th century and so Cairo is very central in all of this the Sultanate is very central in all of this and uh, I think it makes much more sense or it opens up um, the whole period and the whole um, history of the period to much wider interpretations if we look at it from a perspective as a Sultanate a of Cairo, a Cairo sultanate, that um, at the same time also tries to understand why we then yet to tend to think of this of this sultanate as a Mamluk sultanate. When was it Mamlukized? That's then where the Mamlukization of the Mamluk sultanate comes from. When was it ever Mamlukized? When was it when did people start thinking of it as a Mamluk sultanate, a sultanate dominated by military slaves? and a uh, sultanate in which uh, military slavery uh, was considered to be that, the thing that kept it all together, as it were. And that's more... Mamlukization is then rather a question that opens up traditional paradigms and tries to, to look at them from a different perspective rather than uh, following on the
0: same in the same line. I think we could probably do with just exactly what this new interpretation a new way of thinking about the, the Cairo Sultanate and using this term Mamlukization, um, what it actually means for the, the grand narrative as it were as at the beginning of the podcast I've mentioned the previous paradigm this idea of yep. um, of a Mamluk Sultanate which uh, slowly deviates from the Mamluk ideal and then becomes in the 15th century uh, much more defined by attempts at dynastic reproduction but it rather uh, seems from what you've been saying that that entire model that we have that narrative needs to be flipped that in actual fact if we if if we look at the 15th century and we see more successful mamluk sultans that really the 15th century is when the mamluk sultanate becomes a mamluk sultanate and the previous to this It is occasionally Mamluk, occasionally not, more often not Mamluk.
1: If we open up our perspective away from the the old standard narrative of the Mamluk Sultanate, which suddenly appears in the mid-13th century as something entirely new and unseen in human history, as it were, existing outside of history, and that does not change for 250 years. So there's sudden change and then it's static. It's the Mamluks, the military slave state for 250 years until everything, the world around it changes so much that it can no, no longer catch up. Uh, if we move away from that old paradigm, opening up to a new or, or a more open approach, then we can look at the history as not one of sudden change and then status st- st- as not no change anymore, but as, very gradual dynamics of change that continue from one period to another and that continue to change and to use and reuse the models, the appreciations, the institutions, the claims to power and authority that have been made and that continue to be made and to reinterpret them also as continuous with the past, the past that then legitimates also present. And so if we accept the fact that in the 13th and 14th century, We are not dealing with a military slave history, but with a history that first and foremost remains deeply entrenched in dynastic attitudes, in uh, dynastic relationships, and in dynastic claims to power. When we then connect with that simple fact that in the 15th century, this dynastic glue, as it were, that did no longer seem to work, the question raises itself, was perhaps the Mamluk Sultanate, an invention of the 15th century. And Ulrich Harman, in fact, in one of his uh, last publications, suggested already so much from his discussion or his interpretation of European travel reports that there seemed to be this change going on when they speak about the sultanate and how they appreciate the rules that direct accession to the sultanate, from dynastic to far more meritocratic and um, geared towards a Mamluk system. We can expand that Mamlukization Uh, paradigm context to the full specter of uh, power elites of Egypt and Syria were they Mamlukized that is defining themselves far more uh, with respect to their Mamluk origins in the 15th century uh, where uh, in, in contrast to the way it was before but then also reinventing the history of the sultanate, as it were, to also ex- explain and legitimate their own hold on power and uh, projecting their own 15th century situation uh, back into that history and making links, direct links, with these glorious Mamluk rulers of the 13th century.
0: So the 15th century then is a period when people are trying to find an alternative source for authority, that they are tra- they can no longer rely upon the dynastic impulse, there's there's a new quest for legitimacy and that results in recasting the entirety of the history of, of the previous century and a half and of reinterpreting events from 1250 in such a way as they, they make sense of the 15th century and they make it possible for what is essentially a, a century of usurpation followed by usurpation followed by usurpation where Despite the attempts by uh, most sultans to have their sons succeed them, they're almost immediately deposed. And a new soldier, a new Mamluk military slave, takes power. And there needs to be a way of trying to smooth over these transitions, these gaps. And in that context, the narrative of the Mamluk sultanate becomes a 15th century tool to try and make everybody legitimate. Absolutely. Um, That's
1: definitely how I have come to see things. What happens in the 15th century is that there is this continuous attempt to organize things dynastically, but there is also a need to um, claim legitimacy for accessions to the sultanate, which are usurpations and which uh, originate in deep violence, transformations of total transformations of power elites... Uh, between one sultan's court and another's, but still the new court has to explain itself as being uh, as claiming a, si- a similar kind of authority and sovereignty as the other, as the preceding court. And when there is no dynastic identity that can be claimed, no dynastic relationships, then there is this. There seems to be this this, this ongoing quest for other. Meta-narratives that connect, that explain and connect what people are doing. And one of them may well be the Mamluk one. One of them that is definitely clearly presented, present in a lot of the material is even perhaps even more than the Mamluk one. That's one thing that we may want to think about even further Uh, is not only the Turkish one. Irrelevant of the origins of people came from, even Circassians with nothing to do with Turkishness are framed as being Turkish. Uh, but it has to do with the language that is spoken at court, which is Turkish. It has to do with the the, the dressing and apparel, that the the use of furs, uh, the names that people are given when they come to Egypt or Turkish names, etc. There is this this uh, culture of Turkishness that insists also on. Uh, military prowl and the culture of and of hunting and of horse riding and things like that that is being um, nurtured that is being cradled and that is being stressed even more than a dynastic element to, to, to create an identity a political identity that people can can uh, position themselves within and claim belonging and so that seems to, there is this search for identities that transcend the, 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 the irregularities of the time. And one of these political identities is a Mamluk one and definitely a Turkish one and a Circassian one. And these identities, sometimes they clash, but in many cases, they are really foregrounded in, in many of the things that people say or do or many of the traces they leave behind. Uh, and that what helps to create or give uh, legitimacy and strength to an identity is the historical claims that it can make, of course. And if it can link up 15th century with what happened in the 13th century glorious origins on the battlefields against crusaders and against Mongols, etc., then that creates this this long durée continuity that also explains helps to explain uh, sovereignty in the 15th century
0: it seems very much like the 15th century is emerging as a sort of um, period of state formation of the of a proto state consciousness of because of the failure of the dynastic model and of this quest for identity and of ways of making sense of the 15th century and of putting yourself into continuity with the sultans who have been before you that everything seems to be working towards this idea of what what can we use as a focus instead of the dynasty what what is the kernel around which we can all organize ourselves and position ourselves and make sense of of the political reality yes there is this there there seems
1: to be developing this notion of a political order that transcends social realities and that gives people a rightful claim to a particular place within the social order that transcends the adventures and uh, the vicissitudes of this particular family or household and dynasty or that, that is bigger than that, and that is a source of allegiance for everyone, that represents sovereignty, that represents almost a natural order of things, that enables especially to explain away, as it were, all these fractures and discontinuities. And as such, at the same time, it also creates a particular group or it's, it's, it's a recipro- reciprocal process in which it also gives room to the emergence of a particular group of people whose identity, whose social position, etc., is directly connected to the, this transcendent political order. The state, they start sort of enforcing themselves in, in reciprocal ways.
0: So we've covered quite a lot so far, and I think that this is probably a good point to take a break. Join us for part two, when you and I will talk a bit more about where his ideas came from. Until then...